just keep being you. Welcome to the Gentlewoman Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Horlbogen. I'm on a mission to foster civility, respect, and integrity with a dash of sartorial elegance in the boardroom and beyond. And I invite you to join me on my quest. Never have to be like anybody else cause you're my favorite person when you're being yourself. A true original right from the start, straight from the heart, a great work of art, you stand apart. Welcome back to the Gentlewoman Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Horlogan. I'm super excited about today's guest. His name is uh, Pete Havel. He is the author of the book, The Arsonist in the Office. He is also an experienced lobbyist, political consultant, and a crisis communications professional who has served numerous leading business advocacy organizations, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. With skills sharpened in some of the toughest, bare-knuckled professional environments, Pete is committed to helping leaders and organizations face their challenges and provide tools that improve performance, protect careers, and the organizational culture. Who doesn't need that? So with no further ado, I bring you the author, Mr. Pete Havel. Hi, Pete. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you for joining me on the Gentlewoman Boss podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. I thought we should start out with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, sort of what led you to be even interested to be on this podcast. Tell us all about yourself. Sure. Uh, I spent most of my career as a lobbyist, um, as a political consultant, and I can see a whole lot of people tuning out right about now after those <laughs> words. Uh, some jobs dealing with a whole lot of people that uh, most of your listenership probably is not that thrilled with. Um, spent a lot of time um, being a good listener and uh, being um, smart about my business, reading people really, really well. And that had been uh, very successful for me. Took me up the ranks working with a bunch of large trade associations around the country. And what kind of brings me here today and what uh, caused me to become an author and speaker and all that good stuff is after thinking I was pretty savvy about doing all sorts of different things and reading people and reading situations, I found myself in about the craziest workplace culture imaginable. And what my assumptions were about what is right, what is wrong, um, what is common sense to people in management and leadership and everything else was completely turned on and said, mm. I couldn't believe what I witnessed. I ended up losing a battle within the workplace and I decided I've learned some lessons that frankly people don't know until they've gone through it. And so uh, that's why I'm here today. Wrote a book called The Arsonist in the Office and uh, glad to be here today. Yes, I read your amazing book. It was alarming to say the least what you went through. But documenting it in print for posterity was incredible um, and brave and I think a great a great precedent to set that this conversation needs to be had about these crazy toxic workplaces and people just, well, I don't know, I call it running their own rodeo, you know. But um, yeah, your book was amazing. So do you want to tell us like the cliff notes of your experience so that our listeners, if they're in something similar they can you know it will kind of help them relate i essentially bring people along with me into the job from and uh <laughs> it all started with 
with a conversation with my CEO who began by calling me into the office and saying, Pete, I probably should have told you all of this before you took the job, but I don't think you'd be here today. Mm -hmm. And I had been hired to work with the the employee that was the untouchable, uh, that was the person who had done so much damage already to the organization that they had made, and there's a perverse logic that goes with this, um, they had made the decision that they could be even more dangerous to them from the outside than from, yeah. than from the inside. So my job was to partner with, and there's a long, short story behind why she was called this, with the employee known as the arsonist, that person that burned everything down around them. And uh, so I tell that story, hopefully tell it in a fun and engaging way, but um, I wanted people to learn what I did and get some of the perspectives that, um, that you need that frankly, and I'm hearing this from people from time to time that, that will send me a note after having read it, you're under pressure, you're under a heck of a lot of stress, your career's on the line, and none of us think well under that type of pressure. Yeah. And so um, I gave, give people some tips. Yeah, so you're giving, by, by people reading this book, it sort of gives them their fireproof gear. Like it's gonna right. give them their protect, personal protective equipment to handle this if they're in it or you know god god forbid they are but or in the future how to i know there's a big part of the book about um red flags to be alert to when you're interviewing when you're you know meeting with recruiters things that you hear questions to ask that's all covered as well right that's right both on the employee side in terms of you looking at the company but also if you're an employer you don't want to be bringing on somebody that's going to eventually be called the arsonist Right, so, uh, yeah, I kind of have it from both angles because really no one is prepared for that type of environment. Um, at times, it's kind of a slow crawl into it. You have mm -hmm. people lowering their standards, lowering their standards, and eventually things are just a toxic swamp. And so, um, yeah, it, it's really something for everybody in there. Yeah, so you talk about um, in the book the, the self-preservation on the part of it seemed to me, especially upper management, like yes. that people were close to retirement or, you know, in a position in the company where they could have had a lot of clout to handle, put out these fires. But for whatever the, everyone had their own agenda and was protecting, it was self-protection mode, right? Um, like like we do every day with, with car insurance or anything else, the pricing and everything we do is based on some sort of a risk assessment. And in their minds, they had an explosive employee that um, if their grenade went off close to them, and sorry for mixing the metaphors here, but if, if that uh, employee caused them damage, as they told me um, the arsonist had before, right. uh, they, they didn't want to face that trouble and were more than happy to, to put me in between them and uh, uh, have that damage inflicted on me. You were like the koala bear in the Australian woods and the fire was coming right? getting attacked by a dingo or something yeah like that's you right were, you were in the hot seat and you didn't even know it um so you also talk about um, responsibility if i can just can i share um oh yes a, a thought Absolutely. from the book that I, I highlighted you say i think it's chapter 11 um 
In organizations, you have many levels of people with responsibilities, the rank and file employees, the executive leadership, and those with fiduciary roles like members of boards or of overseers. The board is supposed to be the backbone of the organization, those who guide the ship when no one else can, or the ones who are charged with bringing an organization back to its true north when things go south. But when fiduciaries are abdicating their responsibilities, game, set, match, the culture's cooked. So right. you obviously, you had to have lived that firsthand to write that. I've got a little bit of experience in that area. <laughs> Yeah. As I wrote the book, I found myself looking through a whole lot of lenses, certainly my own experience, but I really had to think through what's going through my manager's mind, what's going through the CEO's mind, and then what's going through the board member's mind. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the board members, um, a lot of them don't sign up for um, tough decisions. They're in there because somebody asked them to be on the board. They're in there because they're getting a free meal once a month um, at a meeting. They're they're on there because they think it's going to look good in their obituary. There's all sorts of reasons people join a board. And every once in a while, you may have somebody that says, my goal is to do great things for this, for this company. Um, but while you may have great people on the, the board, it doesn't mean you've got a majority of people that are there to do great things and be the leaders and uh, the the ethical guides, the people that are saying, okay, are you following, you know, for instance, in some organizations, are you fi following your bylaws or are you following your, your code of conduct? And there are so many organizations right now, especially in that, uh, in the association and nonprofit world that, um, and there was one recently, and I'm going to get into the weeds here, a guy that heads up the U.S. Swimming Association, they had a, uh, a huge issue on uh, uh, malfeasance by some, of their, by some of their leaders, and the CEO was put on the hot seat about, have you read your own code of conduct? He hadn't, and I'm guessing if the board was put in that same position, they hadn't, because certainly if the staff hasn't um, walked through what's right and wrong, you don't have your top leadership doing it. Right, right. And then if you're, if that is the case, right, it just it radiates down through the chain of command to the newest hire. And if, if from the top, they're not keeping that code of conduct, what's going to make, you know, Joe Smith on the bottom rung do it? My question for you, because you have so much experience, why is it so hard for people, whether they're newly hired, you know, last person on, or the CEO, why is it so hard for people to do the right thing, to like speak up, to, to say something, to call out the elephant in the room? Why is it so hard? We're all grown adults. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. It is. And I'm pausing to think. <laughs> I, I think a lot of it is um, the, so many of us take that, that easy road and it is easier to, to default to letting somebody else um, do things. Mm -hmm. I think it takes um, it takes training in some cases mm -hmm. in terms of a first time board member may not fully understand that role, their role. And I've seen that in, uh, in some cases. Um, in other cases, you've got people that are heavily conflicted um, in that they may, they may have been brought onto the board 
basically as a, um, a second vote or a fifth vote for the person that's in that's in power. So they're there to support a friend and not the organization. Exactly. And then frankly, yeah. And then a whole lot of people need um, need spine transplants and uh, and are like <laughs> courage to to do what they know is right. I mean, let me give you an example. Um, I know you're a, a baseball fan, having being up in Rhode Island. You got to root for the Red Sox. Absolutely. I hope we haven't talked about Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. There was there's the scandal now going on with the Houston Astros, and they this week um, started talking more and more with spring training starting, and their former now fired manager, AJ Hinch on the Astros, said that um, he wished. He had spoken up when things were um, going on in terms of cheating being done to uh, to help the Astros. And if you kind of peeled back that onion a little bit, the story began with some sort of cockamamie um, tale about an intern starting the scandal. So what, what it said to me was the manager was essentially – too timid to speak up against an intern's idea we see that over and over again you know the they create this cover-up story that actually makes sometimes the initial issue or faux pas whatever you want to call it if they had just addressed it to begin with it could have been handled and dealt with and minimized quickly just handled but instead they create this other whole fire over here to try to cover up the thing which ends up blowing the whole thing up even worse and then the publicity comes right it's like why don't they why don't they just handle have the conversation find the find the answer it goes away but no it has to be the big cover up and it's like it's crazy yeah and, and everything is on somebody's phone or computer or or something like that somewhere, or somebody's going to leak something. It's it's just so easy for things to come out. And you're right, bring yeah. it all out, get embarrassed for a few days, give your apologies, and move on. Rather than what seems to be kind of the mo these days of start making stuff up as you go along and dig a really big hole yeah. and just jump in. Yeah, another thing you talk about um, extensively in the book is the repercussions or consequences when um, management and the company, the organization is not handling these issues and the financial repercussions, the reputational, it, you know, the it, it can wreak havoc on an organization's reputation. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, let's see, in the last few weeks we've had Boeing Crazy. and the 737 Max scandal. Um, one of the ones I talk about quite a bit. There's a uh, a pharmaceutical um, distributor that uh, had a chief operating officer go in front of the uh, kind of the inner circle of the the executives and say, "Guys, we've got a problem with a lot of our drugs that we're distributing being underdosed, overdosed, or completely mislabeled." We've got legal concerns. We've got medical concerns. We've got ethical concerns. We've got all of these things. We need to clean this up. Let me and guess. They fired him. <laughs> they, they, they did. They absolutely did. They got oh. tired tired of hearing this and uh, minimizing it and everything else, and they fired him. And within weeks or months, they turned him into a federal whistleblower. So congratulations to them. Um, quite an achievement. And. Uh, 
That began an investigation into the company, and $875 million later in fines, um, that, that company had to admit their wrongdoing and clean it up. Oh, he's going to get his piece. As a federal whistleblower, I think it's 30% of the total sum. Exactly. He's not hurting. <laughs> How many so, companies and, can afford that, right? Right. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, there, there's a great example right there of the, the finances of it and so many other companies. I mean, you look at Wells Fargo these days with the struggles that they've gone through mm -hmm. that started with financial goals to, oh, if we get a lot more accounts, the shareholders are going to love us. Well, okay, you fraudulently created more accounts to Wall Street, and they're seeing the results of that, that the reputation is tarnished, the finances mm -hmm. are shot, and you've got the federal government with the thumb of, um, of regulation pushing Watching down on the constant. Move. Yeah. Every single move. That's right. Yeah. Back to your uh, the original intro about your book, The Arsonist in the Office. Um, one of the other reasons they tend to keep these toxic people in the organization is because they pull the numbers. Right. They they they're they're productive. They they get the results a company needs. So they're willing to take that positive and let the staff and the, the rest of the employees deal with the negative toxicity. Right. It's like right. it's worth it's worth it to them because they're just looking at the spreadsheet. Exactly. They, they pull the numbers that matter to them and yeah. uh, they don't matter. I should say they pull the numbers that they think are the only ones that matter to them, but they don't consider the whole equation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, they always look at the, you know, what may be the, the revenue, that top salesperson that's chasing everybody out of the office, but they look at their numbers and say, wow, that person brought in $5 million last year. We got to keep them. But they're not thinking about all the staff that's constantly leaving just because they don't want to be bullied by this person. If that person is going to bring future lawsuits, are they mm -hmm. going to, uh, you know, hiring a new employee, especially at higher level jobs, gets really expensive. And the training that goes with that, all of those different things. Mm -hmm. So it, they never, in most cases, are going to be showing you all the numbers. It's the ones that fit the, the agenda. Or you may have companies that really haven't thought about these things before. And that's another reason why I wrote the book, that wanted to make yeah. sure that people knew the whole equation of what goes into this. Because... Uh, Usually it's only that bottom line number that they think is the uh, is the final answer. Right. Like on the budget, the yearly annual budget, they see everything back in black. They're happy. But what what numbers aren't in there? How many people have left the organization? How many how many legal fees have been paid to protect Absolutely. the company to, to get those NDA signed and, and, and shut people up out there that have had it? You know, the Gentleman Boss podcast has been named top 20 best month reporting podcasts of 2021 by Welp Magazine, number 36 of 200 in top entrepreneurship podcasts by Podchaser, and top 20 best whistleblower podcasts for 2021 by CastBox Media. For sponsorship opportunities, please visit our website at thegentlewomanboss.com. What about... Um as far as within the company, I know in your book, you talk a lot about you did have people that sympathize with you, but sure. they were silent sympathizers, right? Absolutely. So there's that, there's that he's on fire, but I'm not going to put my life in danger to help him. Yeah. 
they they would toss an occasional ice cube at me. Um, <laughs> help me out in that way. But uh, yeah, tell me tell me where the fire hose might be. But it was yes, e- even the people that were inflicting the um, uh, the damage, aiming the the flamethrower at me, were. Um, Frankly, in in some way or another, they had been through the problem before, mm-hmm. but you know, it was a little bit cooler over on their side of the office because they weren't being being hit with the problems. And that is, you know, that's that that conflict. In some cases, you may have um, real jerks and evil people that are causing management decisions to to go bad. In other cases, you may have gutless, but kindly people that are good in a whole lot of ways. And if they weren't making your life miserable, you may want to have them over for dinner, but they're gutless and they lack the management leadership skills to truly lead. And that's a big problem. Yeah. So that gets into my little corner of the planet right now about having um, the qualities of a gentleman or a gentlewoman, you know, like that, having that, code of ethics, that being a person of integrity, you know, willing to just sort of that old school thinking, I guess. I don't know. I mean, that seems to have sort of disappeared from the planet. But um, do you think we need that kind of restored with people to have that sense of propriety about what's doing what's right? I mean, is that even possible to reclaim in 2020? What do you think? I, I think it almost has to at some point. I mean, there's that there's that pendulum that, that swings back and forth, and we're always going to have principled people versus transactionally principled people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think you know organizations are always filled with a mix of those people that will do the right thing when required, and then figure out the rest um, when when it's not required. And where, where frankly, um, some of us may run into trouble is in that situation where you know what the right thing is. Everyone knows what the right thing is, but there's no one at the top of leadership that is willing to step in and say, these are our values. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you've got a lot of people that are going to say, all right, well, we know right and wrong, but what's this going to cost us in, in mm-hmm. terms of just you know, dollars and cents or, or time yeah. or anything else. And in those gray areas, in those in that vacuum um, is where a lot of trouble starts. Mm. So you, it's true. I think like you said, we've, we've talked before about this. It does start at the top. It's, it's leadership. It's the executive's role in their organization. I mean, culture is huge right now. Huge. I mean, we've got, we've got, the uh, away luggage company, that fiasco, you know, all those employees leaking that stuff to Vert, is it the Verge magazine? Yikes. Yeah. I mean, all of this. Bring, then they bring her back. I'm not even, we're not even going to go there. <laughs> that was just a lateral move. She has just as much power. Anyway, a friend of mine had me watch a clip from a movie called Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Okay. Um, Alec Baldwin. Now, I had never seen it, never even heard of it. I've never, I've never been in sales. Everyone says I should be, but I've never been in sales. Um, but we were talking about he was hand, handling some issues with staff, and he, I guess, he played that clip for them, and he said, "This is a toxic boss. You know, this is an example. 
I do not treat you that way. You know, it's like his his manner was a little very forward. I mean, he's there to get the job done. He's there to close the deal every day. He's got to do his job. So he has them watch his clip. So I um, late in the day, you know, I look it up on YouTube. Oh, my word. It was like, are you kidding me? Like, that guy would be in jail today for talking to people like that. But my point of that is that can't fly in the workplace anymore. Like, people with social media, with Glassdoor, where people can leave reviews, right, about your company, we need to be concerned about culture and accountability. Do you agree? Right. You, yeah. you would, yeah. I mean, I, I think... Probably 95% of the time, you're absolutely right. And then there's the other 5%. And I, I saw something yesterday with a major international bank with a talk about a CEO who was um, in apparently embroiled in a major scandal, had just been found to have spent millions of dollars chasing down a whistleblower within the organization. And the board says, we've got full confidence in them. Um, and those are the, the situations where if you're an employee of that company, you've basically been told no one is going to, um, to help you if you speak up. I mean, that, yeah. that's right. And I won't go into the, uh, the particular scandal. It's big, it's international, it's highly embarrassing. The whistleblower part, I mean, those were funds basically used to, uh, uh, fuel a vendetta against somebody that had, um, uh, that had provided some information that um, spooked some shareholders. And that board immediately said, we have full confidence in this person. It, so um, they made a personal vendetta because they were exposed. That's and right. they use company funds to, to, to make it personal. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when the board backs you up on that, if you're a rank and file employee, mm -hmm. you're not going to say a word if you, if you want to save your job. Yeah. And that was it. That I have to tell you, I read your book shortly after I was fired for speaking up about ethical concerns two days after I spoke Welcome up. Welcome to the club. I know. <laughs> We're going to make this the club. Everybody wants to be in. I guarantee it. Okay. So um, I was still reeling when I, when I found you on LinkedIn, downloaded your book on Amazon, and it was actually, I felt dumb when I read the part about I felt like a Pollyanna, like you can't go into work and think that doing the right thing is always the right thing if you want to keep your job in that kind of workplace, right? Like, I wish I had read your book before because I would have probably, I still would have spoke up because that's who I am, but I probably would have handled it a little differently. But it was, so after I was embarrassed, then I kind of felt comforted by it because it made me, it made me realize like I, I did do the right thing. It's just the people that had more power than me didn't care if I did the right thing. That's what it came down to. Yeah. So I think there is a certain, I just, I just read a post last week on LinkedIn. This woman, her bio is like number one recruiter on LinkedIn, 800,000 followers. I'm not going to say her name. I don't remember it. But she said last week, when you go on an interview, lie, 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 lie to HR. HR is not your friend. They will lie to you, so you need to lie to them. And she's going on and on. And I'm like, I was raised not to lie. I mean, so it's like if that's if that's how you get a job and how you have to keep a job, I don't want a job. I mean, it's like that's you're starting off with complete deceit as employer and as employee. So I don't know. I don't think that's the healthiest way to go about finding a job either you know or 
Or what's that saying about the company culture? If you can see into that immediately. So that would be a red flag. Right? That's right. And, yeah. and I think that's crazy advice that that person is, is giving out on, on LinkedIn in that you are, what, what are you supposed to lie about and uh, assume that, um, I mean, if you are going to go down that path, what are those areas that aren't going to be fact-checked by, by HR? It's, it's crazy. That's a response to people learning, whether it's personally, you know, tragically on their own going through getting fired or whatever. But that, I think that's just people adapting to what's have become acceptable in the workplace or how business is done or how things happen. And when you, it's almost like you're forced to comply or you go. And mm -hmm. I would hope at some point that can be that that honesty and integrity and standing up for what's right can be rewarded in the workplace, you know, rather than punished. Because we've talked about this, people's lives have been destroyed. Like the whistleblower angle, can people get blackballed? They never work again. They never work in their field, at least. You know, look at Gretchen Carlson. Look at all these big people in journalism. They they were involved in these huge scandals and. I mean, granted, she got $20 million, but she she can't, she really can't work in her field again. Like, it's just, I mean, this, we, and we talked about that too, by the way, the whole Me Too thing and how reading your book also made me see that, I forget how you put it. I don't know where my notes are from you, but you said, believe all women or believe, don't believe all women or something about, like, just because someone claims something happened it doesn't mean it did. They could be sabotaging this totally innocent guy that is not guilty of anything. And with the yeah. with the Me Too movement, there's an automatic you believe the woman, and that that's that's a little scary too because that's tilted the wrong way, right? Yeah, having worked with, and I, I was never, um, although there were a few close calls, I was hired to work with the the serial false accuser in the organization um, had been do dozens of charges um, and I avoided any, uh, any contact uh, that, that could ever get me charged with that. Although there were a couple of close calls <laughs> that I described in the book. Um, my view is there, there are plenty of uh, uh, deceptive people on, in both genders and there are people that play games and learn how to abuse a fine idea and, and a concept mm -hmm. that, yes, we, we should have trust, but there's also reasons why every day, and we see this with cybersecurity, we see this with, um, you know, fraud that takes place. There's people that analyze a good system and look for the weaknesses in it. And mm -hmm. every day, um, there, there are people like that that um, do a lot of damage to a lot of people because they see things in a way the rest of us don't. They have uh, a value base to them that is filled with thinking others would never think um, of. And yeah, that that false accuser I think is damaging. Um, in, in my case, I saw a lot, a lot of guys being uh, hurt very badly by a false accuser and, and mm -hmm. a, a, a well-documented false accuser in that case. But women are, are harmed, I think, even more in some ways 
more broadly as a gender because we tend to get into these gender wars for whatever reason mm -hmm. in our society when the discussions are coming up and having those false accusers out there and somebody saying, you know what, this is unacceptable behavior. We need to roundly condemn that. And certainly for the, you know, the horrific Harvey Weinsteins of the world, um, those people need to be condemned the worst of the worst. But when there's somebody that hurts the cause of women speaking up, and as I think that false accuser does, um, they need to be soundly, um, you know, dealt with in the public arena as well. Right, right. Because it um, it detracts from, it's a, it's sad because, and again, in, in that case, it's, you know, well, as far as the whole thing with the Me Too movement, I, I feel strongly like, and I've actually had men um, contact me mostly through LinkedIn, um, direct message me that they have been afraid to kind of speak out being male victims of it if by women in the workplace because they, they're afraid it, they're going to come across like they're detracting from the Me Too movement. And yet, they have a valid platform too. I mean, we know it happens both ways. So like, and I've had a couple, like, will you get into this? And I, I said, you know, yes, I will address it eventually because I mean, there's plenty of room, there's plenty of room on the platform for everyone, but we should be trying to support each other, not tear down, you know? And I, you know, I, and I can see for a guy admitting like, Hey, this woman, that's embarrassing. Well, it's embarrassing no matter who you are, but um, it, it's kind of like, there's a lot of other offshoots of me too and one of mine which you know is women bullying women in the workplace right. harassing women especially women that are higher up on the chain of command um and there's no accountability there especially in cultures where it's a it's predominantly females in the organization mm, those are the worst so those are all the things that i'm just gonna back away from the microphone <laughs> on now <laughs> Well, at least I said it, not you, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I may have heard these things. It's, it's completely rude to me. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot to be said about all of it. Um, I do have a question for you, which I'm going to ask all of my podcast guests. So if you're a gentleman, um, what is the quality or attribute of a gentleman that you think is most important um, to emulate or to try to practice in life that's your question i'm going with respect i'm writing it down pete i love it yay we're gonna have a little vanna white survey says. survey says respect can you tell me why a little you want to you know starting off with with that that basis of um understanding that uh Oh, men and women are are the same in a lot of ways, but but different in others. You need to respect both the similarities and the differences, and to, mm -hmm. to treat everybody as a uh, uh, both an, an equal as well as acknowledge the the special um, qualities that uh, both sides uh, both both genders bring, and yeah. uh, to understand them. I love it. I think I agree. It's like the great equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. When there's respect. It's like an equal playing field. And that's, that's, that's right. huge. That's huge. All right, Pete. So 
Your book is The Arsonist in the Office. It's available it on Amazon and on your website too, petehavel.com, right? Yes. Okay. Actually, I know you do. You are available for keynote speaking. Um, you want to talk a little about that before we close out? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Take a commercial. Um, yes, I do, uh, I do keynote speaking. I've done it with, um, gosh, everything from chambers of commerce to trade associations to churches. Uh, they have arsonists too. Um, <laughs> and uh, every, everything in between, doing lots of talk radio, this great podcast, all those kind of things. But I also do um, training and consulting, helping companies solve their problems from the inside, deal with the tough issues like the ones we've talked about today. And then uh, we do that either from an advice standpoint or help companies hands-on. Great. And so how can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? They can go to my website, uh, PeteHavel.com. That's H-A-V as in Victor, E-L.com. Mm -hmm. uh, or they can call me at 855-NO-ARSON. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> And your email is all there. And actually, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them they should follow you on LinkedIn. I don't know if you if you accept most connections, oh, yeah. but Pete puts Absolutely. out Pete puts out great content on LinkedIn. He always knows what's going down in the office culture world out there and things going on. And he always has great advice. Um, and he's not judgmental. He's very kind about the way he offers his help. So, <laughs> all right. So um, I will put links to Pete's. Uh, website, his book and everything in the, what is it called? The end notes, the description for the podcast when it's, when it's finally up, I'll put everything in there so people can get in touch with you. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay. For bye -bye. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the gentlewoman boss podcast. Please remember to download my podcast so you can listen whenever and wherever you'd like. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on iTunes and Apple podcasts. Thank you so much if you've already done so. It really does help with ratings and distribution of the show. I also invite you to email me if you'd like to share your story or if you have a question you'd like answered on an upcoming episode of the show. Just visit thegentlewomanboss.com and click on the contact tab at the top to email me. You can also follow me on social media at gentlewomanboss. And if you prefer to watch podcasts rather than just listen to the audio version, my episodes are also uploaded on my YouTube channel in video format as well. Click subscribe and when new episodes drop, they'll show up in your YouTube feed. It's super easy. So until next time, remember, always choose to be the gentlewoman or gentleman in the room. I'll see you soon for the next episode of the Gentlewoman Boss Podcast.